What are we here for? I mean, what is humanity here for? We've been created for a purpose. That is a testimony of reason and scripture. Now, there are many in the world who believe that we are a cosmic accident, that there's some unknown impersonal force called chance that somehow brought about just the right conditions such that the universe in all of its complexity and grandeur managed to come about from nothing. Or else they suppose that the nothing that was previously there was something, we just don't know what. However, they reason that the perfect conditions somehow work themselves together, again, by the all-powerful force called chance, that these conditions work themselves together to explode the cosmos as we know it into existence, Chaos, which then produced order, a principle that we know not only to be improbable, but also impossible. Chaos never produces order. You need some sort of force to act upon chaos to bring order. Much like a child's room never spontaneously goes from a mess to clean, unless first a parent uh, acts upon the child and then the child acts upon the room to clean it. And yet some people believe that it did that. That the whole ordered universe has come about from disorder, from disarray, without any external influence. If that is true, then there cannot possibly be any purpose for anything that exists. Our lives are then one massive cosmic accident, having been created again by this impersonal, unknown force called chance. Life and existence are both meaningless and worthless based on that worldview, no matter how much sense you try to make of it. Now, for those who don't have enough faith to believe that order comes from chaos, that nothing comes from nothing, that something comes from nothing, rather, it is more reasonable to assume that all of what we see has been created by an intelligent designer, that by his power and wisdom he designed, created, and upholds all things. If that is true, if an intelligent designer created all things in a particular way that he created them, not randomly, not, again, by some impersonal force, but by his wisdom they were created, then we also have to assume that he had a purpose. Now, reason only gets us so far, and then we have to turn to the testimony of Scripture, as Scripture is the revelation of this intelligent creator, this intelligent designer. Scripture declares that we ultimately exist, all of what we see, humanity included, for the glory of God. We exist to display his power, his wisdom, his greatness. We, humanity in particular, were created and placed within creation in order to rule on his behalf, being made in his image over and through his creation. Consider that in the beginning when man was made, he was made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1.26, a feature of man's creation story that is not present in any other aspect of creation. Man alone was created in the image of God as male and female. God said of them in the beginning, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
Of all of what God created, he created man in his image, male and female. In other words, part of that image bearing, part of the intentional design of humanity was that they bear his image as both male and female. Those two distinct genders, male and female, are part of God's good design for humanity. And ultimately, through this design, through their maleness and femaleness, they reflect his image. Moreover, he gave them a purpose. And again, that purpose was to rule over what he created. Humanity was designed intentionally by God, created in his image, and commissioned to rule over and through creation on his behalf, being made in his image. Now, sin entered the world when man decided to reject God's design, God's purposes for humanity, when man decided to do what he wanted to do with his body and with God's creation. Salvation, redemption, the new birth, the church is a work of God intended to reestablish God's original purposes for humanity. Ultimately, through the perfect human, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also through all who have faith in him. Thus, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we're called a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Christ, we are a new creation. God is reestablishing his purposes and his original design for humanity. That is a large part of the reason why we must get the church right. This is why we must fully understand what it means to be a part of the church. This is why when someone professes faith in Christ, we cannot affirm that faith if it doesn't look like what God has designed and what God has intended for his new creation. So Paul has said in the course of our study of Ephesians that we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. God doesn't make junk. He doesn't make broken creations. He doesn't make a creation that looks just like the old creation, just spouting new words. He makes a new creation in the church. The old has passed away. The new has come. I've said this already this morning, but this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a part of this new work that God is doing in the world, redeeming people from every tribe and tongue and nation giving them new life on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, where does all this come from? In the context of being called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, the last time we were in Ephesians, we were called to walk in wisdom. Wisdom, as opposed to foolishness, always considers the end. It ultimately considers all of what we do in view of God's purposes for us in view of God's will for us. And Paul said that requires a level head. It requires a clear head, a head not hampered by the effect of too much alcohol. Instead of being drunk with wine, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit, he said. Thus, those who are filled speak in a way that brings blessing to others, give thanks in all things, and they submit to one another in an orderly way and in ways appropriate for our various relationships within the body of Christ. Again, walking in a manner worthy of our calling means in part that we walk in wisdom. Again, to walk in wisdom is to consider the Lord's purposes 
And for that, we must not be inhibited by foreign substances, but rather strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And those who are strengthened by the Holy Spirit speak well to one another, they give thanks in all things, and they submit to one another in areas where appropriate. I mentioned the last time also that this idea of submission carries us through the rest of the section from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And in the rest of this section, Paul is going to examine some of those various relationships within the body of Christ where it's appropriate for us to submit. In our message for this morning, we will examine part one of three. And the message is primarily going to be on the family and the family's responsibility to submit to accomplish God's purposes in an accord with God's design for the family. Well, if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to pick up at verse 22. And for context, I'll read all the way through chapter 6, verse 4, though we will not get through all of that this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. There we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth, and through your word, as Jesus prayed, you sanctify us. We pray that you would sanctify us this morning. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, we exist for the glory of God. God has created us to this end. He has designed us to this end. Thus, to tweak 
Augustine's statement slightly, our hearts will not find rest until they find rest in him and in his purposes for us. The focus in our text this morning is on the believer's family walking in wisdom, filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to the will of God for the family. The outline for this passage, at least from chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, is very simple. There are two points. The plan of God for marriage, or you could say the pattern, and that's in verses 22 through 30, and then you see the purpose in verses 31 through 32. And 33 is really a summary statement at the end. So just thinking about marriage in particular, Paul's thoughts go from verses 22 through 33, and we see the plan and the purpose. Well, this morning we're only going to have time to, to look at his plan for the wife in the marriage Next week, we'll look at God's plan for the husband in marriage. And then the week after that, we'll look at God's plan for parents and children in the family. Well, let's look at um, that first point again. God's plan for marriage, in particular, his plan for the wife in marriage. And we're going to focus in on verses 22 through 24. Again, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, you could either call this the plan of God, or you can call it God's pattern for marriage. And as you look at both the, the, the call of God for the husband and the wife, God created the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage was not created by society. It was not invented by the church. It was first created and instituted by God himself in the very beginning. It was woven into the fabric of who we are as male and female, how we relate to one another and how we relate to the rest of the created order. Again, there is purpose involved, intentionality and design. And thus, in order for us to do marriage properly, we must do it according to his plan. Marriage involves two people, one man and one woman, according to the biblical pattern. Again, according to God's plans and purposes from the very beginning. Each one, the man and the woman, are addressed in this section from verse 22 through 33, and they are given instructions. And I'll just say by way of note, as we go through these sections, these uh, sections both for males and females, for wives and husbands. It's not fuel for you to go home and say, aha, woman, you're supposed to submit to me. You see that? Or aha, man, you need to love me sacrificially. You see that? That shouldn't happen when you go home. That's not the point, right? Those things are true. But the point is that we both have a role in accord with God's design and plan for marriage, and thus we both ought to be pursuing that. We both ought to be pursuing God's role and plan for marriage, God's blueprint. Or again, we're going to look in particular at his blueprint for wives this morning. Well, the key term in that passage that I just read to you in verses 22 through 24 is submit. I think that should be pretty clear. This is what wives are called to do. Christian wives, when you sign up for marriage, when you choose to marry, if you were married before becoming a Christian and you became a Christian afterward, now that you are a Christian, the Lord's expectation for you is that you submit. 
That's God's plan. That's his expectation. That's not the plan and expectation of husbands, even though I'm sure husbands appreciate that. But it wasn't made up by men. This was made up by God. This is in his word, his plan. Wives, submit to your own husbands, the word says. The reality is, as we'll circle back, and we'll circle back to this point later, the reality is that the husband and wife relationship is supposed to communicate truth about the relationship between Jesus and the church. The church is envisioned as the bride of Christ. We see that particularly in Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 9. Our union with Christ is pictured in the union or oneness of a husband and wife. Moreover, Christ is said to be the head of the church, and the church is his body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Again, the emphasis is on the union of Christ and the church and the relationship created by our having been united with him. We live because he lives. More than that, we're intimately and eternally united to him in Christ. More than that, he is our head and we are his body. We are united to him by relationship and he has authority over us. Thus, we submit to his headship, his authority over us as Christians. Again, we've talked about the idea of salvation already this morning. And salvation involves us being given new life. And when we're given new life, we're all brought together in the body of Christ. This new life unites us to Jesus Christ. And again, because we're united to Christ, that makes us a part of his body. And as he has authority over all, that makes him the head over all, including the church. If you don't understand that truth, then you won't understand why wives are called to submit to their husbands. Again, God's plan and purpose for marriage involves them fulfilling the creation mandate that I alluded to earlier And it involves marriage as an institution being a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. In other words, God's plan for marriage is bigger than either the man or the woman. The scope of marriage is bigger. The intent and purpose of marriage is bigger. And again, this is why we must get it right as believers. Again, back to the text. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Well, what does it mean to submit? The word for submit here means to arrange under. It's an intentional arranging of things one under another. One author said that it regularly functioned to describe the submission of someone in an ordered array to another person who is above the first in some way. For example, the submission of soldiers in an army to a superior rank. You all understand what that means. To submit is to intentionally place yourself under the authority of another person. In this case, the wife is to intentionally and willingly place herself under the authority of her husband. Furthermore, the text says to make clear it is to their own husbands. You're not to submit to another person's husband or to another man in the same way that you submit to your husband. I think that should be clear. Well, what does that require? How exactly is she called to submit? Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In case that's not clear enough, look at verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We'll get back to verse 23 in a bit. But the way in which a wife should submit to her husband is as she would submit to the Lord. And I think we can look at that in a couple of different ways. But verse 24 clarifies that just as Christ, just as the church submits to Christ, And how does the church submit to Christ? Well, we submit to him in everything because he's our head. 
so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Again, this is about more than just you or I. It's more than just the wife or the husband. This is about the picture, the design that God intends to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Everything that you hear about marriage nowadays is about people feeling fulfilled in their marriage. It's about people feeling equal in their marriage. It's about people having their best life now in their marriage. Marriage ought to be fulfilling. It ought to be satisfying. It ought to bring blessing. But again, the purpose of marriage goes beyond each individual. It's all about what God has designed the marriage to communicate to the world. If we don't understand that, then when there's trouble, when it's hard for us to obey what Scripture commands, because sometimes it is, When life comes at us and we go through those seasons where we simply don't feel good about each other and about the state of the world around us, then we'll have no reason to stick it out, no reason to persist, no reason to endure or to work through it with each other. To the contrary, the reason why we persist, why we endure, why we work through it in marriage is precisely because marriage is about more than just us. It's about God's purposes and his design for marriage. Now, what does it mean for her to willingly place herself under the authority of her husband and everything? It means three things. First, here's what it does not mean. And there are three things. It does not mean that she is inferior. The world flat out rejects the concept of submission for women because it assumes that submission implies inferiority. The word of God makes no such assertion or assumption. There's no hint of inferiority here. The issue is that of plan and purpose. God has planned purposed and designed for marriage to work when the wife willingly submits. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the Father, obeying him even unto death. But his act of submission to the Father didn't make him any less significant, important, or valuable as a person. In fact, his submission to the Father is really what made him more valuable. It's what made him the righteous one. It's what led to ultimately God glorifying him giving him the name which is above every other name, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. It was because he obeyed unto death. It was his perfect obedience and submission to the Father that led to his glorification. It didn't make him any less as a person. Submission is not an indication of inferiority. Submission in this case, in the case of the wife, is an indication of obedience to God, faith in God's design and love for God and his purposes. It doesn't mean that she's inferior. It also doesn't mean that she's incapable. Some women in their respective marriages may, in the outside world, command respect and honor from others. They may be CEOs. They may be principals, business owners, etc. She may have more letters behind her name than, you know, most of us, PhDs, THDs, or any other HDs. She may be more capable in some senses from a human perspective to lead than her husband is. However, in the context of marriage, that's not her calling. And the reality is that a good leader knows their calling, knows their role, knows and affirms the role of others and does not overstep those boundaries. That's what a good leader does. A good leader knows how to arrange people in the places where they're supposed to be to help them to do their job, to help them to do their work. reality is that someone must take lead in marriage. You cannot have two heads of the household. It doesn't work. 50-50, as much as the world tries to profess that, just doesn't really work. Someone's going to have to make a decision, and particularly when there are differences of opinion, what do you do if it's 50-50? You flip a coin? 
for the world that ultimately boils down to something like irreconcilable differences because they're trying to live 50-50 and they don't want, no one wants to bend, no one wants to break, no one wants to give in. But those things become a lot easier in one sense when we assume the roles that God has given us in marriage and for the wife, again, her role is to submit to her husband's authority and not the other way around. When a woman places herself under the authority of her husband, again, it doesn't mean that she is incapable. It doesn't mean that she is inferior. It also doesn't mean that she has the ideal man. I mean, he's certainly not going to be perfect, right? None of us are. The perfect man doesn't exist except maybe in movies or books, those trashy romance novels. The reality is that we don't wait for the perfection of someone in authority before we act on the basis of their authority. We simply recognize their authority and we respond to it. I mean, who, when they get pulled over by a police officer, asks the police officer if they've been a good boy today <laughs> before they decide to take the ticket, right? Like that doesn't happen because they have authority. And so you acknowledge that authority and you act on the basis of it. He's not perfect. He may, in fact, be a fool or act foolishly at times. Some may think that a decision that your husband is making for the family is wrong or unwise, though it is not sin. We'll talk about cases where there is sin involved. Even if you think the decision that he's making is wrong or unwise, if it is not sin, you still must submit, ultimately. Yes, you lovingly and gently express your thoughts and opinions. You talk it through. Communication in marriage is, is paramount. But when it comes down to it, your role is not to subvert his authority or to rebel, but according to God's design, your role is to submit. He's not going to be perfect. He may at times act foolish. He may even be an unbeliever. But again, the wife's calling as a believer is still the same. She is still to uphold the Lord's design for marriage as far as it depends on her to sub sub submit to her husband, trusting in the Lord's design for his glory. You know, Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says there, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the wearing of clothing, certain kinds of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In cases where the husband is disobedient to the word, she's still to submit. And Peter says in the text that she's to submit in order that, in, in hopes that he may be one even without a word. As he observes her conduct and her behavior, her submissiveness to his authority. And to that end, her submission, and this applies to all wives, not just those wives whose unbelievers, whose husbands are unbelievers, her submission ought to be coupled with a commitment to adorning the inner person, not just the external person. He says this is precious in the sight of God when she seeks to adorn herself on the inside. 
You know, some translations say that your adornment should not merely be gold or the braiding of the hair or costly garments, but particularly the adorning of the hidden person of the heart, seeking to cultivate the imperishable beauty of gentle, a gentle and quiet spirit. He says that's precious in the sight of God. I think that's a beautiful passage, and it's one that we don't talk about enough in the church. We see and hear women who speak their minds and who are known as women who speak their minds, and they kind of wear that as a, a badge of pride on their chest, that they know how to tell their husbands off when, when he needs it. But that's not God's way. What God sees as precious is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in a woman. That is precious. That is beautiful. I give one additional thought. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 24, that she ought to submit to him in everything. Everything usually means everything, right? But in this case, I think we know that there is an exception, and that exception is if her husband instructs her to do something that is in direct disobedience to the word of God. And I'm not talking about something that she just doesn't like or doesn't agree with or something that she feels is wrong, but something that's clearly prohibited in Scripture. If if her husband is encouraging her to sin, to steal, to kill, to lie, to cheat, to do something that's clearly prohibited in the word of God, she must obey God rather than men. And that goes for any of us. And that includes, of course, cases of abuse. And I have to say this now, because often cases of abuse go unspoken. And they go unspoken because we are embarrassed about it, or because we're afraid of retribution, or because, you know, maybe we think the church is not going to accept it or understand it. But anytime there's a case of abuse, any kind of physical abuse, or even any additional emotional abuse, if it's clear, and not, again, not just like, well, I don't like what you said yesterday, or how you said it. But clear cases of abuse must be reported to the authorities. That's what I'm going to tell you to do. We need to know about it. We'd like to know about it as the church to help support you all through it. But those kinds of things must be reported. Okay, moving on. I think it's probably a good time to put in a plug for those who are single or considering marriage by way of reminder that we should seek to marry those who are believers. Marriage should be between two believers, not between a believer and an unbeliever. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Just thinking more broadly about this, I think, you know, at some point in life there develops in us, usually sometime during puberty, a desire for companionship, right? It's a desire for companionship that goes beyond that of a normal friend. That desire is normal, and I think it's a part of God's design. 
The problem is not having the desire to be with someone in a way that is more than simply friendship. The problem in our day in particular is that there's so much of a focus on dating and relationships that the desire is amplified by that peer pressure and those social expectations. I mean, we just came off of the holiday of Valentine's Day, right? I mean, I haven't checked the, uh, the statistics for this year, but Valentine's Day is still one of the most expensive holidays that there is during the year. And all of the companies make all kinds of money off of Valentine's Day, just trying to drum up and focus on this whole idea of romantic love and these grand gestures of romantic love. And we all know that love is not maintained by those grand gestures, right? It's maintained by those, those moment by moment, day by day decisions that you make and the words that you say each and every day, not those grand gestures. But we get sucked into it. And that whole idea of romantic love is something that is just shoved down our throats. And children are dating younger and younger nowadays, coupled together in relationships that they're not ready for. At a time when hormones are raging and life is changing and they don't even know what they want to do when they grow up, but they know they need to be in this relationship, right? It's all this external pressure and all these expectations. And often the first person who comes along to affirm them, to call them beautiful, to show them interest, regardless of what their motives are, the first person who comes along is seized upon. And dating someone who is an unbeliever becomes a secondary consideration because that person loves me and they've shown interest in me and that feels good. And again, the world has largely ignored the design of God for marriage, which is his design for any romantic relationship. The biblical expectation for the context of romance and companionship is marriage, not indiscriminate dating. The same is true for the physical act of sex. It's designed for marriage, not indiscriminate dating. It's good when done in that context, toxic and dangerous apart from it. With all of these things, a natural desire for companionship amped up by peer pressure and social expectation, those things along with the worldview that has divorced romantic relationships from marriage. It's no wonder why people rush to get into romantic relationships and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get into those romantic relationships, even if the person is not a believer. But again, God's design says no. He says, do not be unequally yoked. That is a command. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how they make you feel. What matters is God's design, and that's what we should be pursuing as believers. I'll leave you with this, and then I'll move on from here. If you're a single woman or man, this could apply to either, and interested in a relationship, I would, ask, I would encourage you to consider the following. For yourself, are you living in obedience to Christ today? Are you pursuing the will of Christ today? Are you actively engaged and involved in seeking the will of God for your life? Are you content with who you are in Christ today? None of those things will magically correct themselves when you have a romantic relationship. It's not going to fix. Cultivate an obedient heart before the Lord. And if you are a woman, as we've we just read, cultivate that quiet and gentle spirit before the Lord. And be patient and trust the Lord to provide for you when it is time. If you're thinking about a potential suitor, are they a believer? That has to be the first consideration. Not how well they look. Not how buff they are, right? Are they faithful to Christ or are they known as such by others? What is their family life like? What kind of spiritual leader would they be? Could you see yourself submitting to this person? Where are they headed in life for the glory of God? Can you see yourself in whatever expanded family the Lord allows following that person? 
If you're not sure about those things, and whether you're sure or not, have someone else who is older and wiser in the Lord evaluate this person with you. Again, we live life in community in the body of Christ. So this should be, this is one of the most important decisions that you'll make in life. And so you should have input from others who are older and wiser and godly. Okay, back to the topic at hand. Again, wives are called to place themselves under the authority of their husbands in everything as to the Lord. Doesn't mean that she's inferior. Doesn't mean that she's incapable. Doesn't mean that he's always going to be the ideal man. He will certainly not be perfect. That shouldn't be your expectation. None of us are. He may at times be a fool or make foolish decisions. And in some cases, he may be an unbeliever. In those cases, you entrust yourself to God and submit to him in ways that are appropriate. Well, what does it mean when a wife willingly submits herself under the authority of her husband? We looked at what it doesn't mean. What does it actually mean? There are five things here. First, it means that she's seeking to obey her Lord for her joy. Again, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Just as the church submits to Christ, so should wives submit in everything to her husband. Her husband, her submission to her husband is an expression of obedience to the command of God. And as she obeys, she is trusting God to give her fulfillment and joy through her obedience. Again, we're supposed to be looking to Christ as our ultimate example. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says there for him that he went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross for joy. He perfectly obeyed his father, submitting to the will of his father, which took him to the cross and all of that with the confidence that God would give him joy for his service. And wives, as you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as you submit to him to obey the Lord, you're submitting to him with the confidence that he will give you joy in your marriage as you obey his will. Two, the wife who submits is seeking to live a spirit-filled life. Remember the context of Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesians 5 is for the church to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ and particularly to walk in wisdom. To walk in wisdom is to walk in the power and provision of the Holy Spirit as opposed to walking under the influences of substances like alcohol. Or I would also add not walking under the influence of the world's ideology concerning marriage and relationships. Paul said in the previous section that a spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. Therefore, a spirit-filled wife is a wife who submits to her husband. She seeks to live a spirit-filled life. Third, the wife who submits is seeking to affirm God's original intention for women. As I mentioned previously, this is in complete accord with God's original design for marriage. In the beginning, Adam was created first. Then, according to Genesis 2.18, which we read earlier, he determined that it is not good for man to be alone, but that he would make a helper fit for him. The original design of women, of the female human, was to provide companionship for man, someone who would be a helper to him, who would correspond to him. She was to provide companionship. She was to accompany him as he pursued God's purposes. God gave the man work. Even in the next verse, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, we saw the man hard at work naming the animals. It was in the course of his naming the animals that he realized that there's no one corresponding to me. There's no one here to be a helper for me. No one fit or suitable for me. And so God formed the man from his side. The idea of companionship would also include the contemporary idea of romance. She was there to be his partner in love, to be emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually his partner. She would provide him with comfort, encouragement, support, security, conviction, affirmation, respect she was be his romantic partner but much more than that he would find his fulfillment in her 
We have texts like the Song of Solomon. We have texts like in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, in the context, Solomon was encouraging his son to stay away from the adulterous woman. He says, don't be intoxicated with some strange adulterous woman's love. Be intoxicated with the love of your wife. Again, that idea of companionship, relationship, love, closeness, intimacy. We talk about the command to leave one's father and mother and to cleave to one's wife and to become one flesh. That idea of oneness and unity. The world characterizes Christianity as anti-romance, anti-love, anti-sex, anti-pleasure of any kind, but that is not so. But the word of God has a context for that. God's will is that it is done in the context of marriage. Hebrews 13.4, 1 Corinthians 7, affirms the sexual relationship and intimacy of a husband and wife. That it is good. It's not a bad word. It is good in the way that God designed it. It's wrong, and it leads to all kinds of trouble, just like anything else, when we do something outside of God's design and God's intention and God's purposes. God created and designed women to be a companion for men, to be that intimate ally. I'll steal the title of a book that I saw once. That intimate ally that men so desperately need. Wives should see that as a part of their role in the life of their husbands. Now I have to say this. Women today see it as their duty to make themselves up to be as sexually appealing as possible to the masses and the way they dress and they carry themselves. And then they complain that men in the world over-sexualize women. I mean, I don't get that. They complain about that, but they still pursue that same image. And young women often are influenced by the same desire, the desire to be appealing in the eyes of the world, feeling that if they're not appealing to the eye, then they are worthless. And again, the word of God does not prohibit women from looking good. That is okay. But women, wives, if you're to adorn yourselves, again, the primary means of your adornment should be what? What did Peter say? The inner person. That quiet and gentle spirit, that is precious in the sight of God. That is beautiful. It is okay to adorn yourself externally. That's not wrong. But you should much more adorn yourself internally. And if you're going to adorn yourself externally, it should be for your husband's benefit and not for the rest of the world. And I'll leave it at that. She was created to provide him with companionship, but also to help him in his work. He was called to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Of course, the world has divorced the idea of procreation from the marital union but the biblical expectation is that those in marriage will bear children they'll have children that's a part of the creation mandate from the very beginning that hasn't changed that hasn't ceased and certainly we live in a fallen world and our bodies do not always work as they ought to and some are not able to have children naturally but generally speaking the biblical expectation is that when a man and woman come together that they will be fruitful and multiply that's a part of the work that God has for humanity and God has given the woman to the man for that purpose but also to subdue the earth and to do the work of cultivating the earth and whatever other work God has given the man he has given the woman to help him in that and we see examples of that 
such as in Proverbs 31 with the virtuous woman, the virtuous wife, who goes out of her way, who is industrious, who is careful, who takes care of the family, who buys, I mean, she's out there buying fields and planting vineyards with her hands. She's dressing herself, making her arms strong. She's purchasing merchandise. She's selling merchandise. The text says she is clothed with strength and dignity. She opens her mouth with wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This is not a woman just sitting around at home doing nothing. This is a woman engaged in the life of the family, engaged in the life of her husband to help support him and to help be a blessing to the family. This has been God's design from the very beginning. The first woman was created for the man to be his companion, to be his helper, to correspond to him, and all to the end that together they would fulfill God's purposes for humanity. So again, what does it mean for a woman to submit? It means that she is seeking to obey the Lord. She's seeking to live a spirit-filled life. She's seeking to honor God's original design for women. And fourth, she's seeking to affirm and to trust God's ongoing plan and design for marriage. I mentioned that we would get back to verse 23. Look at 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself is its savior. We talked about God's intent from the beginning of creation. We've also talked about this idea of God's design for marriage. And God's design for marriage is that marriage be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Jesus Christ being the head, we being the body, him being having rule over all and us submitting to his rule. And that picture is envisioned in the picture of marriage. As the husband is the head by God's design and the wife is the body who willingly submits. And so as she submits, she is affirming God's design for marriage. And fifth, and finally, a wife who willingly places herself under the authority of her husband seeks to honor her husband. And I think we don't think about this enough. Again, verses 23 to 24, the emphasis is on submitting. That's the overall theme. But Paul provides a summary statement for this section in verse 33. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. To submit to your husband is to show respect to him. It is to honor him in the role that God has given him. The world doesn't care for this. The feminist movement is only concerned with the glorification of women above men. It once began as a desire to see that women were treated equally and seen as equally valuable. But it has become a desire to see that women rise above men in honor and respect. And a Christian woman is not a feminist. Her desire ought to be to honor her husband as her head. That is God's design. You cannot have a proper respect for or honor for your husband if you don't submit to him. Again, Christian wives are called to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord in everything. This does not make her inferior. It does not mean that she is incapable. It does not mean that he's always the ideal man. It does mean that she's seeking to obey the command of the Lord to live a spirit-filled life, to honor God's original design for women, to affirm God's ongoing design for marriage, and to honor her husband. I know we're coming close to the end here, but I want to conclude with some specific ways that a wife may submit to the authority of her husband. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it's meant to give you some ideas. And I'm borrowing most of these from a book entitled Strengthening Your Marriage by Wayne Mack. It's a good text. If you know someone, if you're married, or you know someone who is married and you think they could use some encouragement, that would be a good book, Strengthening Your Marriage, written by Wayne Mack. 
And I'll read off a, a number of these this morning just to give us some specific things, uh, give the ladies some specific things to consider. Number one, see your life and your relationship with your husband as your primary ministry or work in life. When you marry, you agree to submit to your husband to be his companion, his helper. So see that as your primary work, your primary career, your primary duty, your primary role. That doesn't mean that everything you do is connected with your husband. It doesn't mean that you can't have a job outside of the home. It does mean that everything that you do shouldn't harm or take away from your ability to support, to serve, to submit to, to care for your husband. Two, make your, your home a safe place. Love him so that he wants to come home, someone once said. Number three, be trustworthy and dependable. Be someone he can trust and he can depend on. Maintain a good attitude, number four. Number five, discuss things lovingly, openly, and honesty. And we'll talk about this next week, but certainly in the context of making decisions for the family, if a wife is submitting to her husband, then his word is going to be final in, in most cases, but he's also going to take her opinion and her thoughts into consideration. And as she has those opinions and thoughts, she should express those lovingly, openly, and honestly. Number six, be satisfied with who you are, who he is, your possessions and tasks. And the idea here isn't that you shouldn't seek to improve yourself and your family, but it does mean that you should refrain from complaining. Number seven, be long-suffering, forgiving, forbearing. Read back through Ephesians 4, all those things that we talked about when we went through and we talked about how we speak to one another and how we use our words. Number eight, show interest in his problems and concerns. Again, that's Philippians 2. Be industrious, frugal, diligent, ambitious, a creative member of the team. That's Proverbs 31. Offer suggestions, advice, and correction when needed in a loving fashion. Don't be that contentious woman that Proverbs talks about. Number 11, keep yourself beautiful for your husband and let him be satisfied in every way with you. Pursue that. Seek to please him. Number 12, maintain a good spiritual life. Keep yourself beautiful on the inside. Again, 1 Peter 3. Cooperate with him in raising the children. Now talk about this next week with the men, but it's not only the woman's role to, to care for the children and to uh, raise the children. You all should be working together in that. Number 14, build loyalty to the children in him. 15, be grateful to him. Show confidence in his decisions. And just a couple of my own, be his primary encourager. Because there are a lot of things that are discouraging about life. And there's a lot of things geared in life toward tearing us down. So you need to be your husband's primary encourager and pray for him. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for yourself to follow God's pattern and design and to submit and pray for your husband. If he's a fool sometimes, pray that God will help him not to be a fool. If he doesn't listen to you sometimes, pray that God would help him to listen. Whatever it is, don't just complain about it. Don't sit and grumble in your own heart. Pray and ask the Lord to intervene and to help. And trust that the Lord is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And that includes in our marriages. Being a Christian wife is a high calling. 
It is a high calling, but God has given each of you what you need in order to achieve it. Trust in the plan of God. Trust in his design. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. And trust God with all of those things. If your marriage is in trouble or you know someone whose marriage is in trouble, don't sit on it. Don't wait. Seek help from the community of believers. Seek an older, wiser saint and do that quickly. Titus chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 3 reminds us that we ought to be doing that anyway. The older saints... You older women in particular, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, you older women who are married or have been married in the Lord know what it's like to be married. And you have trusted in the Lord. And so you should be reaching out to the younger women in the congregation, doing things that I cannot do as a pastor because you are a woman. Reaching out to the younger women in the congregation, encouraging them to be submissive to their husbands, to love their husbands, to be a blessing and encouragement, how to dwell with their husbands and to live in a way that pleases God, how to take care of your homes. Women, older women, that is something you need to be doing because scripture commands you to do it. I think the bottom line is that regardless of how your marriage looks today, the Lord does have a purpose for your marriage, which is greater than what you see or your own personal comfort. That is the ultimate truth in this passage, and we should hold on to that. Our life has purpose. Our marriages have purpose. God has designed for wives to have purpose and joy within their marriage as they seek to accomplish his greater purposes, seeking to display the beauty of Christ's relationship with the church. That all involves, wives, your submission to your husband's. Oh, may God grant our marriages and particularly Christian wives to be filled with joy and peace for his glory and for our good. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we've had together around your word. Thank you for the reminder that you do have purpose in marriage. And your purposes in marriage goes beyond our immediate comfort. You do desire for us to be filled with joy and peace. You do desire for us to have joy in our marriages. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to start with simply obeying you and what you have called us to do within our marriages. And I pray for our wives who have put their faith and trust in you that you would help them to submit And that through their submission that they would give glory to their Redeemer. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.